If you've read Dave Rod's book, A Why to Live For, uh, you may recall that Dave tells the story about a day back in the summer of 2012 when Dave and I sat on his back deck, a deck that I'm proud to say that I helped build, by the way. Um, and we sat on his deck and we came up with the concept of the six broken places. And it's a concept that is now the bedrock of all that we do here at Grace. And during that time of thinking through all of the brokenness that we were, that we were seeing all around us, one area of brokenness that we knew was everywhere was isolation. We knew then that many people were lonely and hopelessly so. And we knew then that many people were longing for relationships of meaning. We knew then that many people needed community and a sense of dignity and belonging that comes from being known and knowing others. And in October of 2012, when we first introduced the concept of the six broken places to Grace Church, Dave preached what I still believe was one of the landmark sermons in the history of grace. It was a sermon in our Six Broken Places series, and it was simply entitled Isolation. And in that sermon, Dave identified the problem of isolation, and he articulated the depth of this broken place in our world, and he also listed out some very practical ways for all of us to engage in being the healers of others' isolation and loneliness. And as I recently revisited those practical suggestions from back in 2012, I realized that in today's world, with all of the new rules about how we're supposed to interact with one another, with all of the necessary social distancing and our uncertainty about the safety of our world around us, many of Dave's suggestions Things like inviting people over to your home for dinner or making certain that you're close enough to others to give them a caring touch or that you make time to visit others in their homes as, as a way of showing that you care about them. Well, these things, they just don't work right now. We are now living through a time when everyone understands, at least to some degree, what it means to be isolated. But today's isolation is different than 2012's isolation. Today's isolation comes with the underlying given that everyone outside of our very closest family and every place outside of our own homes are just existential threats. We don't know who we can trust. We fear for ourselves. We fear for those we love, and we're fearful because anyone and any place can make us sick, possibly even kill us. And I've talked to a good number of people with family members who have compromised immune systems due to chemotherapy or diabetes or heart conditions who are, they're constantly worried that they will catch the virus somewhere and then they'll pass it on to their weakened loved one. And I've talked to older people who are sequestered alone in their assisted living spaces. I've talked to single people who are terribly isolated in their apartments or their homes. 
I've talked to students who are separated from their friends and the activities that just a few weeks ago gave their lives meaning and purpose. And I've also talked to people who are living with their families, but under difficult and even dangerous circumstances. I talked to a woman recently whose circumstances in her home were intolerable. You talk about isolated. Now, three months ago, I would have known exactly what to do for this woman. I would have connected her to one of any number of women in our church that I know are, they are wise and they're gifted listeners and they would have met with her and put their arms around her and comforted this lonely, isolated woman, and yet we are now living at a time when putting your arms around someone isn't even an option. It's literally considered dangerous. And I'll say it again, we are living in a time when everyone understands, at least to some degree, the brokenness of isolation. And this really begs the question, now what? Now that everything has changed, and I feel so isolated. You know, I've done a lot of looking into how modern day social scientists are telling us to deal with the loneliness and hopelessness of isolation. And what I've found is that almost to an expert, they all say the same thing. They say that when a person feels isolated and lonely, the best possible solution for their loneliness and isolation is to reach out to someone, someplace, someone who seems to be in greater need than they are, and then to show them some love. Now, I know that this almost seems like a cliche. It sounds too simplistic, almost naive, to say that reaching out to help someone else in the depths of my isolation is the cure to my isolation. But as I've thought about life, and my life specifically, there's real truth to this. It is true that when I'm feeling alone and isolated, it is a great comfort for me to step out of focusing on my own circumstances and then to begin to focus on the needs of others. And this truth doesn't just come from modern day social scientist experts. And I don't want to over-spiritualize this too much, but Jesus actually said the same thing at one time. There was a time when Jesus was asked by an expert in the religious law, and oh, well, why don't we all look at it together? You can find it in your Bibles. Turn to Luke chapter 10, and we'll start in verse 25. I think it's important that we're all looking at the Scripture together. That's Luke Chapter 10, verse 25. And here's what, here's what a religious expert said to Jesus. He said, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Well, rather than answering this legal scholar's question directly, Jesus turned the question back on him and he said to him, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Well, the man answered by quoting from Deuteronomy 6, 
And from Leviticus 19, he said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. Now, this conversation uh, could have ended right there. But this scholar wasn't done. I think he wanted to poke at Jesus a little bit more here. So this is what we read in verse 29. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, this word that is translated neighbor, comes. it's the Greek word, it's plesion, plesion. And it isn't a word that simply meant someone who lives nearby like we would think of it. Somebody in your neighborhood or a couple houses down. No, it was a word that meant someone who was close to you. Anyone who was near to you in relationship. And at the time, most Jews would only use this word to talk about their very closest of relationships with other Jews. What this man really uh, wanted was for Jesus to weigh in on just how many other people he had to love like he loved himself. And we know this because when it says that he wanted to justify his actions, it clearly meant that he was trying to see if Jesus would approve of how small his circle of loved ones or his plesion had become. But Jesus didn't reply with some theological answer. He didn't parse out the Hebrew from Leviticus 19 or quote some Jewish legalese for, turning, for determining your neighborliness. No, what he did was he told a story. A story that, had become, that has become famous. That's the story of the Good Samaritan. And this story is not only famous, but it's also become so much a part of our culture that even people who have no idea what a Samaritan is, let, let alone a good one, they, they have some idea of this story's meaning. And I believe what Jesus said in this story is directly related to the circumstances we now find ourselves in today, now that everything has changed and so many of us are feeling isolated. Jesus starts the story this way in verse 30. He says, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the side of the road. Now, it's important to stop right there. This trip from the old city of Jerusalem to Jericho was about 18 miles and the reason that it says down to Jericho is because Jerusalem was about 3,800 feet above sea level. And Jericho was about 850 feet below sea level. So, so in just 18 miles, you drop down 4,650 feet. And there really wasn't a, a real road between these two Jewish cities. And I want to emphasize that they were both very Jewish cities. It was more of a rough pathway, uh, treacherous, 
winding, difficult pathway that included many back and forths and sudden drops in and around large boulders. Plus, the pathway was so narrow and rocky in places that it that it made everybody who was on this trail a target for banditry, so much so that in Jesus' day, this pathway had two names, or nicknames, I suppose. One was, they called it the Way of Blood. Or some people called it the Ascent of the Red, as in blood red. This road was so dangerous that about 30 years after Jesus told this story, the Roman army built permanent outposts every couple of miles along this pathway so soldiers could guard the travelers from bandits. I mean, this was a dangerous way to go. And so when Jesus said that this Jewish man was robbed, stripped naked, beaten, and left half dead, the listening crowd would have probably thought, well, it figures... That figures everybody listening to Jesus on that day would have known that traveling that road alone was pure foolishness. And then Jesus says, by chance a priest came along and when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed by, passed him by. And a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. I'm not going to say much about these two. My thought is that the main reason that they didn't stop and help this man was that they were afraid that what had happened to him might happen to them if they didn't hurry along. Clearly, there were bandits nearby, and it was better to be safe than sorry. Then Jesus says this in verse 33. He says, Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. And the next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. A couple of things. This man was from Samaria. And Samaritans were considered by the Jews to be less than human beings. Uh, They were half-breed religious heretics to the Jews. I don't know that it's possible to overstate the depth of Jewish disdain, no, disgust for Samaritans. Also, Samaria itself sat right between the two Jewish provinces of There was Galilee in the north and Judea in the south, and right between them sat Samaria. And we know that when Jews had to travel from one place to the other, they went way out of their way, way out of their way going into other lands, so they never had to put one step into Samaritan soil. And the Samaritans did the same thing when it came to being around Jews. Jesus saying that a Samaritan man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho would have been almost unimaginable to his listening crowd. You talk about out of your element, a Samaritan man traveling alone on this road between these two Jewish cities? And Jesus also added some other important details. He said this man had a donkey. Donkeys were, they were very valuable and they were expensive, Donkeys 
were so valuable that it wasn't unusual for four families to pool their money together and buy one donkey that they would all share. But Jesus clearly says that this man, it was his donkey. And on this donkey, the Samaritan had the makings of a first century first aid kit. He had oil and wine and bandages. So who knows what else this donkey was carrying on his back. We do know that the Samaritan had money with him. When he gave the innkeeper, a Jewish innkeeper, by the way, I'm sure, two silver coins, it equaled two days of a workman's salary. And if we calculate it by the value in 2020 here in Hamilton County, that's about $600. Let's put this all together. You want to talk about somebody who was isolated from everyone and everything. It was this man. He was racially an outsider, alone in a terribly dangerous place for everyone, but especially for someone of his nationality. And he was traveling in a way that made him a natural target. He had a donkey. He had money in his pouch. He was carrying valuable things with him. The picture that Jesus painted was of a man who was about as alone and isolated and vulnerable as a person probably could have possibly been in Jesus' world. If anyone had reason not to stop and help a half-dead Jewish man, but to hurry on to a safer place, it was this man. And the crowd listening to Jesus would have understood immediately why it was so amazing that this man stopped and this man cared for, and this man stayed the night in a Jewish inn with a Jewish man that he didn't even know. Everyone listening to Jesus would have understood exactly what Jesus was saying. The religious scholar certainly did. When Jesus asked the scholar, who was the neighbor, the plesion, to the man attacked by bandits, the scholar knew the answer immediately. He knew that it was the despised Samaritan. It was a man who cared less about his own safety and showed love to his neighbor. And Jesus' final words on this subject probably cut right to the core of everyone listening that day when he said, now you go and do the same. Now, I know that this story that Jesus told, he made the story up to make an important point. But what a story. Let's think this through one more time. The story of the Good Samaritan is the story of a man who is isolated and vulnerable on a difficult, dangerous, and frightening journey who set aside focusing on his own circumstances just enough to change another needy person's life. And I think this story is pretty relevant to where we all find ourselves today. We are all isolated to some degree. We are all vulnerable to some degree. We are all on a difficult and in many ways a frightening journey. We are all living through circumstances that could overwhelm us. But with this said, I still believe that the lesson of the story, as well as the overriding arc of the entire Bible 
is that in all times and in all circumstances, God's people are to live other-centered lives. We are, as the religious scholar rightly said to Jesus, we are to love God first with all that we are. And then secondly, we are to love our neighbor, the one near to us, the one whose need we can see as ourselves. We are to go and do the same. Now, I'm not unaware of reality. I know that a story like this can lead to feeling that if you don't do something massively heroic, like save a dying person, which many people are doing right now, by the way, if you're not doing something massively important like that, then what you do do may seem inconsequential. And I don't want to give that impression at all. Plus, I know that many people are already doing amazing things for one another. There has truly been an outpouring of caring and love in our community. And so what I, what I think I'll do, I'll just tell you what we, and when I say we, I mean my wife Jennifer and I, what, what we are doing as we try to step outside of our own sense of isolation and show love to our neighbors, those who are near to us. Now, I know that I should be doing this anyway, but I'm purposefully calling my dad. I am making certain that he and his wife Nancy are okay. My dad is 87. He's as healthy as a horse. And he doesn't like anybody telling him what to do. But still, I am calling him and we are making certain that he and his wife are on our weekly family Zoom call. It just shows him how important he is to us. It shows him that we care even though we can't go and visit him right now and be with him. And I'm also doing my best to look for outdoor chores for the 16-year-old bored out of his mind teenager who lives three doors down from us. Um, some of you may know that we live in two acres of woods. And this young man spent hours last week just picking up sticks for kindling for us. And he came back a couple of days later and wondering if there was anything else he could do. And I didn't have anything right at the moment, but out of the blue, he just plopped down. Now he was an appropriate distance from me, but he plopped down and he sat there and he stayed a good while and we talked about life. And I'll take that. I'll take that. And plus, I'm, I'm working alongside other staff in the care center every Wednesday and it's about six hours once a week where I don't have the time to think about myself. And Jennifer is being quiet before God and she's just letting the Holy Spirit call names to her. And then she's praying for those names, but then she's writing short letters to these people and mailing them to them. And she's occasionally taking meals down to that family of my 16-year-old friend. They have three teenagers. Their mom can use the help. She's helping. Now, none of these little things are heroic in the manner of what the Good Samaritan did. 
It's simply being proactive where we know we can, but it is loving those near us. And in loving them, we are easing their isolation and easing our own sense of isolation. Now as stepping out and loving our neighbors in the depths of our own sense of isolation easy? No, it isn't easy. Does living this way come naturally? Well, it doesn't for me, especially when I know that doing this can actually come at a cost. But I have to keep reminding myself that the answer to today's question, and the question is, what now, now that everything has changed and I feel so isolated, the answer to that question for followers of Jesus is this. I am going to choose to love my neighbor. How that looks for you is determined by your own world, by your own placeion. Those you know are your neighbors. And just to be clear, I also know that many of you are already doing just this. Grace people are reaching out of their own isolation and showing love to those that are near to them in so many ways. There are people who are calling our care center friends to check on them. There are people who are calling our older congregants just to pray with them and check on them. There are people, small group leaders of students who are calling their, these students that are in their small groups just to let them know that someone is thinking of them and caring about them. We could go on and on. People are making masks and they're delivering groceries. The list goes on and on. I just want to say, if you're looking for ways to help others, just go to our website. There's a button on the front page. It's a place where you can find ways to reach out to others. But here's something I know that is true. Every time someone reaches out and shows love to someone who is isolated, two people's sense of isolation lowers. And the healing comes to a very broken place. I want to close by reading to you a quote. It's a quote from Dave's 2012 isolation sermon. Listen to what he said then. Listen to the strong, visionary, commanding way he ended that sermon. He said, we, the people of Grace Church, in the name of Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will love those who are isolated and lonely, and we will love them as we love ourselves. And my 2020 prayer, now that nothing is the same, is that we will do just this. That we, that you and I, we will, in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the midst of our own sense of isolation, we will love our neighbors as ourselves. We will remember the compassion of the Good Samaritan and we will go and do the same.